Quite the Thing Media, we aim to bring you the best podcasts produced by independent creators, made without constraints. Hello everyone, welcome to the new podcast uh, from Quite the Thing Media, it's Water Maneuver, uh, my name's Simon. Um, over the next couple of weeks and months we'll hopefully be bringing you some of our favourite moments uh, in the, the history of professional wrestling. Um I'll give you a wee bit of background uh, to myself. Um, so obviously I've been a wrestling fan for over 31 years now. Um, my co-host Kev, he's, he's probably around about the same time. I'll let him explain in just a wee minute. So yeah, I've been a, a wrestling fan for over 30 years, um, on and off, but mostly on. Uh, I think the only year I took off from wrestling was the year 1995. Uh, I think it's obviously been one of the worst years for, for wrestling just in general. Um, Kev? Uh, yourself, how long have you been involved? My first event, mate, was in the Royal Rumble 1991, which anyone that's ever listened to me and do podcasts before will know that I received a videotape from a friend of a friend that was half an episode of Neighbours and half the Royal Rumble 91, and I'm not even joking about that. I went from... The first ever match I watched was Bossman versus Barbarian. And I was getting hooked, and then I seen the Ultimate Warrior come out and do a promo with Sherry. And then it cut to Joe Mango talking about Bouncer. Um, <laughs> and that's probably dating ourselves a wee bit there, mate. Um, yeah. From then on, I was hooked. I was actually hooked. Uh, like that's yourself, a- I, I took a hiatus. I think I stopped watching about uh, maybe 93, just to start of 93. Um, just it changed a wee bit of the business. We, we now know that it was to do with like, the steroid scandal and whatnot. Vince was coming under pressure. Um so stop watching about 93, never really followed it through the mid-90s. Like you say, 95 is probably yep. one of the worst years in the business from all angles, whatever way you look at it. Um, and then I started getting back in it in secondary school, 1997, funnily enough, yep. at the tail end. Uh, I could probably try and date the Raw, but do you remember the Raw where the Outlaws and DX attacked the LOD and put animals through the table and I think the shaved hawk's mohawk or his mullet yep. or whatever it was he had. So that would have been probably about November, December time, 97. And I got back in it because my pal at school um, was telling me how great this guy called Steve Austin was. And he was absolutely amazing. And it's not all the wrestling you remember. And then again, like you mate, I was hooked and back in. And you just, when you've missed it all, when you've missed all these years, there's so much to go back and look at. And yep. unlike today, where you could click the network and you could literally watch years and years and years of wrestling. Back then, it was going down to Virgin Mega Stores on a Saturday or HMV, seeing what videos were there, looking at the matches in the back and trying to decide what I want to buy. I always remember that. I think it was HMV on a Saturday. You would go down the stairs to the basement yep. and that's where all the, all the wrestling, all the videos were at the time. It was, it was always something great just to get taken in there by your mum and dad on a Saturday afternoon, just going to see the old wrestling tapes that were there and, and whatever else. My first event was uh, WrestleMania 5, so I'd have been about five years old at the time, so it's, it's vague, vaguely remember it, but seeing Hulk Hogan against uh, the Macho Man for the title, that, that got me hooked. Um, and ever since then, WrestleMania 6, that was one of my, my favourite ever events, seeing Warrior win the title. Obviously, latter events really were from changed people's perspective on him, but I mean wrestling back in the early 90s was, was, it was amazing, it was really just something that was 
a phenomenon really. Hulkamania was still running wild. You had this sort of new generation of stars that were coming in, obviously due to the steroid issues that were uh, prevalent throughout the time when Vince was under a bit of pressure. So, um, no, that year of 95, I kind of took off in most of 96 as well. Just really from a Survivor Series 1994 when Brett lost to Backlund, I think. I just I chucked it after that. I just wasn't... It just didn't take my fancy anymore. It was more... I wouldn't say it was more cartoonish because it was always cartoonish during that era as well. But no, it, it's just getting older as well. And you were thinking, no, it's it's not for me anymore. But late 1996 is when, when I, it really it kicked on for me. Um, some new characters were introduced and, and obviously it was going a bit more edgy. And, and that, that, that's just we ourselves being that wee bit more older. You know, we'd have been getting into secondary school, as you say, and we, we would have been... Um, more mature in that respect, where <laughs> what, what, what our viewing preferences were. When did what, when or why? What, what, no, why did you just like on Sky on a Friday night and see Raw, or did you did somebody say to you, or did you just Some, have to watch it? Yeah, I was kind of flicking channels one night, but someone has said to me that um, there was a guy. This was mid mid ninety six, late ninety six, when Stone Cold was starting to to rise up, and he was calling out Bret Hart and. I was always, as you know, I'm a big Bret Hart fan. I was, why is, why is somebody calling out the Hitman? This Hitman's, he's so virtuous. He's just, everyone's behind him. He's the fan favourite. Why would someone come out and just speak to him this way? And it was it was a lot more edgy. Um, and it was really when Bret Hart came back uh, in that sort of late 96 period um, that, that I got right back into it. And then, as you say, it was Bret Hart turned heel. And, and I was always really a, a big fan of the Hitman. So I always felt that, um, I was on his side all throughout. Even when he was a bad guy, he was a good guy over in the UK and Canada, and it just it just made me love him even more. Did Did you buy like I've obviously as I say I took that team off right. So when you miss it, you go right. I like this. I'm going to go and see what last month was like. Oh, that's mm-hmm. okay. I'm going to go and see. What, so you eventually go back and you pick up like we say you pick up a a Survivor Series '94 or '95 or whatever. Did yep. you looking back? Brett was far superior to Backlund. You couldn't, you couldn't buy that Backlund was a threat. Couldn't you not? I mean, when Hogan was up against his monster factory, like you knew Hogan would win, right? But you bought them as a threat. But Backlund, and because we're used to seeing all these roided up guys, right? Yeah. At the time we don't know that, but we're used to seeing giants, right? We're used to seeing giants. We're used to seeing people like Sid that we'll talk about a wee bit more. We're used to seeing people like Hogan, like Warrior going for the main belt. So now Brett's got the belt, which is fine, because everybody likes Bret Hart, right? I always slag him, because his fans are almost as bad as AEW fanboys, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point in this pod, and future pods, but you could, you could buy that Brett was a champion. But then you've got this old guy who's got a shaved head, who just got a blue pair of trunks on, people telling us, and I don't know about you, but do you think WWF's a bit like the English Premier League, where it, it was going for ages, but they only sort of really talk about it since the night Hogan won the belt. Anything before that didn't really happen for years. They just sort of wanted you to totally forget about it. But then Backlund yeah. came back and they're like, oh, he was champion before. And you're like, oh, hey, well, I've yeah, I mean, not, never yeah. spoke about it. We're just made by this guy's buggered off for, what was it, 12 years oh, or something? He, he was gone for it. I think he came back in early 1993 and he would, I think Iron Sheik beat him. And that was one of the first times I'd really heard, obviously, about wrestling before it. Because, as you say, it was always we were always told wrestling started when Hulk Hogan beat 
Eddie Iron Sheik at Madison Square Garden for the title. That's when whenever I had um, basically watched wrestling at the start, we always said, oh, Hulk Hogan beating Iron Sheik was a turning point in the business. But as you say, um, no, it was just different times back then and even now. I mean, we see the modern product and myself and in terms of WWE, I just fail to connect with it at all. Um, I know you're the same. We can hardly get through a, a, show, a show now without fast-forwarding. I mean, the pay-per-views can still be good from time to time, but it's a different time, and obviously that's what we're here to talk about tonight, is that different time. Well, I mean, you talk about now. I mean, when I stopped watching, one of the reasons was I was sitting watching The Ultimate Warrior being made to be set by Papa Shango, and mm. I would have been about, what, 92? So I'd have been 9, 10. And nine, ten-year-old Kev is going, what's this? This is nonsense. I clearly see it's nonsense. And it's the sort of thing that you're embarrassed to watch. Like, if your family's in the room, that mean, you're like, what are you watching? Why is that guy putting a spell on him? And you're like, I don't know. I was tuning uh, into versus Sean for the, think, for the IC belt. Cause... Uh, I think the old Papa Shank, for an eight- and nine-year-old kid, that that's still quite freaky and terrifying for a kid at that age so I was quite taken in by that, that whole angle at the time but as you say it was that sort of 1990 late 94-95 period that just turned me off completely the wrong guys getting pushed obviously we can we can go back with hindsight now and watch on the network and as we as we've done many a time I'll, I'll go into how I met Kev uh, down the years as well we, we just through our love of wrestling and I love of a certain football team in, in Scotland is, is how we met each other. So, but no, just just wrestling in general. Um, it's got it's, this this whole cycle of turning points and different points in history when it's when the business is up and when it's down. Um, so no, it's it's just one of those things really how 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 it comes and goes. The thing that I don't get right, and I've often argued, is that they say the business is cyclical, or whatever you want to use the word. Yep. It's like so to me, WWF late eighties, early nineties, right? Targeted towards young kids, right? It's targeted mm-hmm. towards six to what ten, twelve maximum. So mm-hmm. you've got those people that are watching, right? Now to me it's a bit like kids' telly, right? When you're young and you're watching telly tubbies or whatever it is, right, you eventually move on to something else. You, you, then the next generation come along and they will watch Teletubbies. Anyone that's got small children will know that you can turn on a show, Mickey Mouse Clubhouse or whatever it is, and it's probably the same show that your cousin or something watched a couple of years before. But with wrestling, they say it's a cycle, so mm-hmm. they never try and sort of age with their audience. That's right. So WWE sort of gets stuck in a rut from, like, we say, 94, 95. It's stuck in this rut where it's not quite superheroes of, like, Hogan's either. Everyone's getting a job like a hockey goon and all that, and it, but it's just like, right, so why should I care about this goon? What does this goon do? Oh, well, he's a hockey goon. He plays hockey. Right, okay, that's it. That's the end of. So never try to grow. But then come, and we're going to talk about it, ninety-seven. I think a lot of people like us that that sort of like wrestling love the concept of it, but it came a bit hokey and a bit babyish for them. When ninety-seven, mm-hmm. ninety-eight, ninety-nine comes. This is the same thing that we watched years ago and were into years ago, but it's now for a more adult audience. You know what I mean? It's it's now saying, okay, this is a, a pimp. This is yeah. a porn star. This is a guy that drinks beer and tells his boss what he thinks of him, and then you've got a guy like The Rock that's cool. So, yeah. so 
it's moved on the models. I often think that WWF and Mr. Trick, when that actually ends, Ruthless Aggression come in, and then they went through this PG era, and mm-hmm. I thought they should have then targeted the younger audience to then try and keep that cycle going. So yeah. that if they say, right, for the next five years, we're going to be PG, then we're maybe going to move to TV 12 or whatever it is, then up to TV 14 and try and get another cycle. But, again, that is a yeah. story for a different I point. We are here yeah. to talk about next seven. That sort of old three or four period, that's when, when the Attitude Era fans were lost. Um, I mean, that was fans, like, even like ourselves, that had grown up throughout the whole 90s and early 2000s were kind of thinking that things are starting to for, to change for the worse here. And then we've also got to go on about how WWF changed their whole business perceptions in the mid-90s with the challenge of WCW coming into to take them on head on and they were far more edgy at first than WWF were and that that competition forced WWF as we know to, to change for the better in those years but as you say we're here to talk about 1997 so we will go on and we'll discuss that so we'll, we'll kind of pick up uh, kick off Kev through the starter from the end sorry of 1996 and that's kind of when Shawn Michaels um, run his first run as champion uh, came to an end at the Survivor Series. That, that this is for me when fans started to wise up a wee bit more to the whole booking process and inner workings of WWF at the time because they fans weren't happy that Sean it wasn't his fault. It's probably just the way he was portrayed as champion, and that that again that that rings true today with some of the decisions that creative uh, guys make. Um, but no, Sean Michaels was. The right person, probably at the wrong time. What do you think? Um, obviously, Team Sean, your team, Brett. But I think we can both respect what why the other holds that opinion. I'm not going to sit here and say that Hardcore Holly should be WWF champion or anything like that. We can both see why the other likes each wrestler. Brett had obviously probably had the toughest job in wrestling where he was the man who eventually took over from Hogan. Yeah. Because Hogan, as we know, up until that point, biggest wrestling superstar ever. Not saying he's the best wrestler in the world. I think anyone would come on this show and say that Ric Flair was a, a worse wrestler than Hogan. But if you're talking worldwide appeal, I think if you go walking down the street in the early 90s, late 80s, People will know who Hulk Hogan was. But then, like we talked about, the, the business goes down. He tries to replace Hogan with Warrior. He tries to replace him with Sid. He tries to replace him with people like Luger. But then you've got Brett. Brett does, I think, an, an okay job. But again, it's the toughest job. To me, it's like trying to take over Man United after Alex Ferguson, right? Yeah. How many managers have they had, right? It's just, it's going to be something that they need to stick with. But when you're in a position where you're used to making X, you're used to winning this, when that's taken away from you so, so quickly, it's almost like, we need to do something else, we need to do something else, we need to do something else, we need to change it, we need to change it, it's not working, and you panic. So you eventually found that constant with Brett. And Sean, again, the thing that I like about both Brett and Sean is they both started in tags, worked their way up to the IC level, and then naturally grew into the WWF title. And, it's funny, see, if you look and you go back in history, since sort of Hogan, anyone that's had a first WWF title run, very few set the world on fire. 
And I think Maybe. it's almost like Vince sort of saying, I'm going to test it it's to see test, if it works. Yeah. I mean, even going look at somebody like CM Punk, mm-hmm. and I know we're all over the place here, right? But like CM Punk, his first title reign wasn't that great. Remember, he was booked again. A wee bit like Brett, because a, yeah. a lot of Brett's title reigns, he was booked like he wasn't in the main event. He was like two or three matches from the main event. And that was the same with CM Punk. Um, so sometimes it's when somebody gets a belt a second or a third time that Vince is really with them because maybe yeah. he's looked and sort of said, well, try it, it didn't work. Let's try this, let's try this. Oh, actually, he was quite good. Um, so Brett done what Brett does. He's stellar matches. But again, throughout, <laughs> you've got to feel sorry for Brett. He's constantly having the best match on the card. If it's not him, it's Sean. And he's getting paired off with guys like the pirate steal his jacket he's getting paired off with Kane before he was Kane as a, mm-hmm. an evil dentist and it's just ludicrous yeah um, that's again yeah that's it's booking it's, it's booking it's just it's not logical it's crazy actually um, but like you say they decide to go with Sean and I think Brett does a really smart move and Brett takes a lot of time off yeah sort of say I think Brett's Let a run. himself Going right, let's see how you do this without me. Best mm-hmm. thing you could have done. I mean, obviously, yeah. the story does not end well for Brett. Spoiler alert, but if you're listening to this, I'm pretty sure you know that already. Um, so, Brett obviously takes time off, and Sean is. Do you agree that he's maybe cast a wee bit as a, a Brett Hart light? Like the, the, the. Yeah, he was a sort of. The, the true baby face? Yeah. The white meat, isn't it? The white meat baby. Yeah. Like the every man, the sort of man next door, sort of hero, working class hero, but that's where it kind of wasn't, because Bret Hart was far more believable in that role whereas Shawn Michaels down the years was obviously that whole pretty boy sort of routine that he had bringing kids into the, to dance room and stuff, so that's kind of where where WWE let him down, eh, creative wise, where they could have had Shawn more relatable as a person, but again things behind the scenes with, with Shawn at the time his kind of life was going off the rails a bit with all drinking drugs and whatever else, so um, but, but that's what I'm saying. Like Brett, Brett was that. Brett believed that. Yeah, Brett no, wanted to be people's hero, and I don't think Sean did. No, Sean's that's a prick, right. Yeah, right? Brett, no, I Brett love, took, especially in 1997, Sean. But he was a prick. So if you cast him like you do at the end of '97, as the DX, as the degenerate, as the guy that says pretty much anything on air, that is going to come across as more relatable and more real. Rather than again going back to today's product where somebody's standing reading a script that a team of writers have come up with. Yeah, I think if you look back through time, there's there's probably not one wrestler other than Bret Hart that truly carried themselves off as a champion. I mean, every, everywhere he went, he just took the role so seriously. And that's probably what was his downfall in WWF, especially. And we'll discuss it later on. That, that was his downfall that he took Everton far too serious but you've got to respect him for that he, he just he prided himself on the way he carried himself as champion everything that he'd done in life and j- just being a role model you know what I mean even today he's still a fucking hero to myself I mean I, I just won't have a bad word said against him I just love him um, but again it's just one of those things there were two different champions and, and as you say Brett was right to to take that time off and then he picked his, his time to come back and we'll talk about that as well during that period of 96 WCW wanted him uh, signed up but that was Brett's loyalty uh, Sean threw and signed that new 20 odd year deal uh, with WWF and you'd think looking back in time Vince McMahon surely to God 
when someone shows you that loyalty and refusing the money, he could stay true to his word. But hey ho, that, that what's done is done. Um, I'm not better. <laughs> Do you think Brett would have been a success in WCW because they clearly didn't know how to book him? They, if he they, went, they just didn't. In '96, if he goes in '96. And John NWO, yeah. do you think he gets in with the, the cliff of Hall, Nash and Hogan? Yeah. Because him and have... Hogan were far from pals. Uh, I think I think going then in 96 would have would have been that that would have done him. That would have definitely been far more better than this November 97 jump. So uh, what a difference I mean, a year you can make. make. It's a long time, isn't it? Yep. Um, you mentioned, like, obviously with Sean, they've tried to cast him as this Bret Hart yep. light. There's no other. To me, there's no, there's no. If you take Sean out of that right and put mm-hmm. Brett in that role, the booking's the same. There's no yeah. there's no change in it. You know what I mean? Yeah. The, the, it's the same stories. Uh, it, it wasn't working with him. You know, Sean at this time, '96, had great matches. He fought against Nash before he left. He fought against um, Bulldog. He fought against. Remind me who else to fight Foley, didn't he? Yeah, that was uh, a great match, that one. Foley. So, I mean, the match against Diesel, remember the one with, is it Good Friends, Better Enemies, where he takes a leg off, uh, Mad Dog yeah, for Sean. For Sean, yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a great match. So the matches are living up to it. But to me, it's just the character's not coming across as yeah. as believable. Yeah. And then, obviously, they put him with Jose Lothario. They try and get some sympathy on him when he loses despite the crowd turning on him at Survivor Series and MSG, mm-hmm. uh, obviously turn on him, and then they do the whole start of the year in 1987, they do the, the homecoming, they try and get filled with the stadium for yep. the rematch against Sid, which he, he comes out victorious. But I have to say, I think the start of the 97 Royal Rumble is without doubt uh, a Mr Stone Cold. Yeah, that, correctly. That's definitely it. The whole screwy finish and that, that that's just the part of when they were trying to get Brett I don't know if they were still trying to push him as a as a as a heel then I mean that was the the groundwork was there yeah, to do it but even when, when I was watching it I said no nah, he's moaning because he's got the right to moan because he's been screwed out of a title match at Wrestlemania the fans were still firmly on his side and that's the thing with Bret Hart, he was one of these wrestlers that fans just would, they were so reluctant to turn on him at first, um, they just didn't want to do it, but um, the whole finish at uh, the, the Royal Rumble was, was so well done as well, um, and I remember thinking for years after it, ah, that, that Royal Rumble was declared null and void, because they didn't really they didn't really mention it as such, because the very next pay-per-view they'd done, um, like a, was it the final four? Final four, Aye, final four that was it, but the whole Rumble the, the story of the Rumble was brilliant yeah, I mean, they were sort of quite thin on talent and I mean, you were big fans of something to wrestle with, Bruce Pritchard. Mm-hmm. We, and even though it's a wee bit more, I think you'll agree, uh, toned down now since Bruce has obviously got a job back and he's not as angry. <laughs> he perhaps doesn't say everything that he would have said when the pods first started. But I think this was certainly a couple of years ago and they talked about this uh, Royal Rumble, how they're trying to fill the dome and they yep. were light and remember Mel Mascus, that's where Three. the whole no, no, job. no job no job came in um, so he had, he had to eliminate himself but the story of Stone Cold <laughs> in that match where he's fighting and then he eventually gets people out and then he's doing the push-ups in the ring and he's looking at his imaginary watch and then Brett's yep. music hits and he holds his head as a 
Park Brett's coming out now, this is going to be a fight because they'd obviously had a, a classic match at Survivor Series 96, which doesn't get talked about because of a match I'm sure we're going to touch on in a couple of minutes. But you're right, the, the whole thing they say about heels is that heel has got to believe what he's doing and what he's fighting for is right. And Bret Hart believed that he was being screwed left, right and centre. Now, at this time, 1997, the world's changing a wee bit. The internet's more coming into play, albeit it's dial-up, which anyone that's ever played site FIFA will know he still owns <laughs> dial-up. It's uh, like saying um, But the, the world's changing. Like you say, the fans are getting smarter. They, there's probably more people reading things like newsletters. There was obviously Wrestling Observer that was out there. Uh, towards the end of this year, I think I started buying Power Slam magazine, which although it wasn't a dirt sheet, was still a very good read and had a lot of inside info. But people are now changing. They, they, I think the WWE began to realise this slowly. And we've spoken about this off-air, where if you watched the first Raw of 1997, and maybe watched the... I'll not say the last one, right, because the last one's always like a phoned-in Christmas special, but like maybe one from early December, that's a yep. whole different show. That is... Mm-hmm. It's just... It's night and day. Um, and I think this is the year that, like you said, they, they were trying to catch up to WCW, who... Anyone that's ever heard Bischoff speak will say that when he first put in charge of WCW and he was going in charge of Nitro, he made a list of everything WWF was and he wanted to be not better or worse than, he wanted to be different than. And he said they were all cartoons. Again, jobs like plumbers, jobs like... Who else did they have? Bin men took the dumpster, didn't they? Yeah. An absolute dross like that. So he made clowns. all the characters. Yeah. Clowns. So he real names. Again, he didn't just come in overnight and say, right, this is all away, because they've still got the Dungeon of Doom, which we will do a watch-along one time on a WCW Dungeon of Doom special. But <laughs> he, he edited all this out week by week. He filtered it down so that it became Kevin Nash versus Scott Hall, uh, Diamond Dallas Page versus Bill Goldberg. It was more real names, real people, rather than Duke the Dumpster Drosy versus Doink the Clown versus... Mabel from Men on a Mission and it took WWF a while to catch up yep. but then when they did it's the realism before and this is why we sort of enjoyed 97 maybe a wee bit more than 98 and 99 before it, it went too much the other way where it went full Vince Russo full what was it he watched um, Jerry Springer when it? it was all that sort of yep. stuff that was a shock TV, the sort of, what was the jock, uh, the shock jock, what was his name? Um, the Howard DJ. Stern. La- Howard Stern, I was going to say Larry Stern. No, Howard Stern, that was a sort of big thing that Vince Russo loved uh, back in the day. But um, no, you're right, as we, we turn of the year, Psycho Sid was back as champion. As you said, the whole Shawn Michaels thing kind of burned out towards the end. The fans were just sick of the whole way he was portrayed. And again, it wasn't his fault, that's just the way that Vince uh, portrayed him uh, down the line so the fans were ready for something new and I just remember that the end of that pay-per-view that, that, I think it was supposed to be was it Jose Lafari was supposed to have a heart attack after getting smashed uh-huh. by the, the, the camera and the fans were going absolutely wild they were cheering an old man taking an absolute battering so <laughs> <laughs> and Sid with a powerbomb won the title and as you say the fans just erupted that night and you could tell it was only a, a short term thing um, I think they were trying to work out what they were going to do if it was going to be Austin that was going to get the title because he was it was just picking up so much momentum at the time and and at that point 
I think most people watching, myself especially, I thought Austin was going to win the belt and Bret Hart was going to be the challenger for, for WrestleMania, but things didn't work out that way, Kev, as we obviously we've seen the Royal Rumble with, with Sean winning the title back, um, Austin winning the Rumble, as we mentioned, that Final Four pay-per-view, uh, the title was vacated because of Sean getting mysteriously injured again. I um you've had very much the Andy Webster of wrestling in nineteen ninety seven in the era, No, the whole world I think was predicting that Sean and Brett were gonna have a rematch. Yep. I think Brett said it himself where he wanted to have a trilogy, but Sean was a bit of a prick. Didn't really like Brett. Whether it was jealousy, um, yep. I don't know. Any, anyone that's watched the the wonderful A and E documentaries I think all of them went down really, really well, apart from maybe Savage that I didn't watch, which partly was a bit of a burial. But they've all went down well. Sean, I think, and his was the most open I've ever seen him about his drugs and alcohol mm-hmm. abuse. Yep. Brett's, anyone that's seen Wrestling Shadows knows sort of Brett's story and stuff, but it's always good to check in with the hitman and see how he's doing. I think he's he's in a far better place now than he was, what, 15? Yeah, or, um, no. 20, 15, 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, both physically and mentally and emotionally but you're right when Sean lost his smile about here and then from a was it a knee injury he had here I yeah. think it was a back injury wasn't it yeah, knee, knee injury, injury couldn't yeah. work um, which again that's, that's one of those sliding doors moments because what happens if Sean carries on and, and works with Brett I think we miss out on an absolute classic match which took place yeah. in March of that year and that was the the battle between Stone Cold and Brett with a double turn, which is a very, very hard thing to do. I mean, I've seen a couple of these, and I can go back mm-hmm. to the, the Powers of Pain and Demolition when Fuji switched to Survivor Series 88 or 89, whatever that one was, and, and the fans didn't know what's happening. They're sort of like, hey, okay, what's yep. going on here? They very rarely do it one, now. They very rarely do it. They're so hard. It's so hard to do. Because I think the last... When was the last thing? Was it Del Rio and Ziggler? A good few years ago, they tried they done it, and it actually worked that night because I'm sure Ziggler was champion. Del Rio was Ziggler was heel, getting on his champion, and Del Rio just totally annihilated them all night. And basically, that was a double turn. But that was the last time they've, they've really done it in WWE, so to speak. But no, um, that night was was fantastic. I mean, even up until the end of the match, the fans weren't quite sure what to do, and then. Brett just unleashed that, that assault on Austin with a chair and stuff after the match. I mean, that just solidified that. I mean, I was just sitting in the house. I was 12 years old at the time, sitting in absolute shock. <laughs> but, but see, that's that's a classic about Brett. And if you look at when Austin turned heel at WrestleMania 17, I still don't think that was very clear mm-hmm. because Austin had used sort of heel tactics throughout his full run. And even shake hands with Vince, you're like, is Vince a good guy now? You weren't quite sure. As with Brett, says, no, look, I am the bad guy. I'm leathering him. I'm leathering him a chair. He's passed out. He can't fight back. And then he backs up from Shamrock. And yeah. you've never seen Brett Hart back up from a fight. So that is telling you, look, I'm hitting this guy when he's down. So yeah. they always say that you should be able to watch a wrestling match with no commentary, no crowd noise, and you should be able to tell that story of what is happening. You should be able to tell who the good guy is, what the bad guy is, and what's happening. Is he working on a leg? Is he working on the back? Is he working on the arm? And if you watch that with the the noise off, sound off, you can tell that Brett's turning heel. 
and that Stone yeah. Cold is just only saying, well, this guy's given everything. All right, he's no one here, but he has given absolutely everything. He was fighting right to the end and he just couldn't take it anymore and he passed out. So well done you, mate. Um, so I, it's a, it's a perfect, it's almost, a, I think, well, it's up there with one of my two or three favourite matches and oh, we'll perhaps do a pod one time and yeah, it's, everything about it's perfect. The work's perfect. The story's perfect. Um, the officer who's in commentary that I think it was JR and Vince uh, yeah Jim Ross I think, I think Lawler was there as well see I think them, the three of them, them yep. I. Um, I think the three of them because do you know the other thing that I think is very very telling about 96 and 97 one of them uh, we've obviously spoken about with Brett taking the team off in 96 but Austin getting injured mm-hmm. and he wasn't fighting so you're, you're that desperate to see him yeah as well they've done that Again, so these well days, if you watch Raw right for talking sake right, I don't watch Raw I've not watched Raw frequently since probably 2014 right when Punk left um, but if you watch Raw because it's three hours now for talking sake you'll get whoever the champion is Daniel Bryan say he'll come out in segment one then he'll come out in segment two then he'll maybe have a backstage thing and then he's fighting in the main event as we were back then, because you only do one and a half raw, taking into account the adverts and whatnot, you you only seen Austin in one segment. So you were so dying to see him. It wasn't overexposed. And like we say, Brett took time off. And that's when you miss people when they're not there. And then when they come back, it's a big whoa. But then you're not, you know, I mean, you're not overexposed. You're not seeing them every single week. You're not seeing them every single hour. You're, you're literally getting one segment. But the show's that packed that. I love that segment. But then the next segment comes along and you're still watching it because you're enjoying the show. It's just it's something that I don't think wrestling does often enough where they should give guys time off. They should mm-hmm. maybe, you know what I mean? I'm not saying they have an off season, but I'm saying, but remember Sean Michaels done it as well when he came back and towards the sort of, was it 05, 06, 07, where he would wrestle at WrestleMania and then he would take time off and he'd generally come back from SummerSlam. Yeah. Again, that, that gives somebody else a chance to come up and, I'm not saying take Sean's place, but to fill that time on the card, give somebody the exposure. I mean, you mentioned Ziggler there. Ziggler, uh, and this is another thing we've discussed before, Ziggler's been about since, what, 08, 09? Yeah. When did Ziggler debut? And 06, he's been on TV I more. Jesus, man. He's been on TV more or less every week, or right? he's in the audience or whatnot. But that's like 15 years constantly of this guy being on your telly. And you're yeah. like, how, how can I constantly miss him? But, they managed it so well here with Austin where they would show you snippets. Remember, they would have the whole Vince angle of you're not clear to wrestle, I'm looking yeah. out for you, I'm only doing this to protect you. And they just they made the best out of a terrible, terrible situation which yeah. they were obviously so close to. Again, you're talking about sliding doors moments. 1997, it's full of sliding doors moments. And if Austin can't wrestle, what do they do? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> because... It- Am I right saying, sorry, cut across you, but was it September? Sorry. The September 97 Raw in Madison Square Garden, the That's one that Triple H Cactus Jack. That's mm-hmm. when Vince tells him. But does Vince know that Austin's coming back then? Because if you lose Austin and you're saying to Brett, look, away you go, mate. That's, yes. That's, a, that's another one, because if you lose Austin, what happens throughout 98? You're obviously putting your eggs in the Sean basket. I think we know what happens with him. It's just 
Yeah, I think the Austin injury happened early August, just well, obviously SummerSlam and that. But that was usually SummerSlam's later in August, but it was early this year, I'm pretty sure. Um, and for the next couple of weeks, he was doing vignettes and stuff. He'd got different um, medical opinions, saying no, some said yes, and then eventually, I think they basically said, yeah, you can you can still go if you get this done and that done. So I think. By that time, when September, mid-September came around, he would have known that he was eventually going to get back in the ring. I think his first time back in the ring was at the Survivor Series against Owen. We'll go back and talk about that that's as right. well, obviously. But, ah, that's uh, right. <laughs> it's slightly overshadowed that match, isn't it? Yeah, well, I know. Gets, nobody will ever really talk about it. But going back to the, the end of WrestleMania, obviously, Brett's turned heel. Um, the Undertaker finally getting his big big moment at WrestleMania. He takes the title from Sid, and that's kind of really the end of Sid as a force in in WWF. He, he, he appears sporadically over the next couple of months. I think his last pay per view is the the King of the Ring team in WLOD, and that's kind of the end of him for good, basically in, in WWF. So quite sad to see him go out like that because he really was a good good monster sort of wrestler. Um, Fans loved him as well, so it just kind of sad how that fizzled out for him. But no, The Undertaker finally getting his moment, um, well-deserved at WrestleMania 13. And he kind of pushes back to his feud uh, thereafter that he had in 96 with, with Mankind. And that's just another one where it's really good good work from, from whoever's on creative at the time, pushing back on that feud because it's guaranteed to draw eyes to it as well. Um, both of them work really well together. You've obviously got Paul Bearer in Mankind's corner. Although this is kind of mankind, kind of there's the fizzling out of his sort of heel character, and he does these sort of sit down interviews with Vince and Jim Ross, and that's the sort of heel turn. Uh, sorry, the face turn uh, starts to begin for him. But we see the Undertaker aligned again with with Paul Bearer, and we we kind of know what happens next. The Undertaker's working with him because Paul Bearer is about to reveal a secret, Kev. And is that not just brilliant? Because these two have. Well, Taker came in first, obviously. Anyone that's a long-term fan knows that Taker debuted at Survivor Series 1990. Yep. Brother Love was his manager. They then passed him across to, to Paul Bearer. Again, one of the names that just happened to kick about at the time and was it's wonderful booking, right? It's, they throw a hundred of these ideas at the wall and very few of them stick, but this one stuck. And obviously he turned heel on him against Mankind. But it just didn't work, didn't it? No, it looked weird seeing Paul Bearer with Mankind or um, who else did they manage? Was it Vader? Vader? Yep. Vader, aye. It, just, it didn't work. Right? Paul Bearer and Undertaker are meant to be together. Um, and then, like you say, they, he says he's got a terrible secret he's going to reveal. And you're sort of like guessing what it is. It would then unfold. It's his brother Kane and he would debut later in the year. But just that thing where you're just you're putting the two people that are meant to be together that have been apart for a while back together. Something that people are used to seeing. Yeah. And it just worked. And you talked about mankind. I mean, we know that Vince was not a fan of Foley. He mm-hmm. brought him in as GR will tell you to see what happens when a talent breaks your heart. I don't think Vince was a fan of the death match sort of angle and all that sort of jazz. He, he obviously got forced out of WCW because they weren't fans of the way he was taking bumps and ridiculous mm-hmm. bumps at that for the time. But then he, he debuts as Mankind and it, it gets over. It, working with Taker is good. But then when you start, again, it keeps coming back to 
if you look at all these people we're talking about, right? We talk about Brett being the hero. Brett mm-hmm. believed in his head that he was the hero, right? Stone Cold is Steve Austin or Steve Williams with the volume turned up to 11. Mankind developed and turned into Mick Foley with those sit-down interviews because if you weave bits of truth into your wrestling storyline, people sort of find it hard to say, right, okay, where, where is this? Where is this line here? I know he's working this, but yeah. is that story about eating worms? Is that true? Is <laughs> the, the story about girls and all that no one to kiss them? Is that true? Because it's very believable. We are, what, 97... I'm 15, so this is sort of the thing that a 15-year-old boy would be worrying about. If a girl's going to want to kiss him, is yeah. is he going to be the weirdo in his class? These are all <laughs> things that goes through your head at that age. And you've got a guy on now who was living in a dungeon a couple of months ago to then being this guy who grew up in Long Island, who jumped off roofs, playing wrestling with his pals, and suddenly you're like, I can sort of relate to that because yeah. I, I do that. I go to my pals and, and we wrestle and we... We mess about and we talk about girls and stuff like that. That, that that's sort of relatable, and like you say, that that's just that realism being injected into the character, and it would eventually change into corporate mankind in '98, and then just the '98 Rumble, which is another personal highlight for the whole three faces of Foley coming out and stuff. It's uh, it's magical, but again, it's just we've been talking for ages now, and but Foley sets us up as a why this year is so good because you've got yep. Austin growing. You've got Brett, and we've not even touched on the Heart Foundation yet. Um, we've got the heel Brett, which is a new quote of paint for a guy that's been about and been the hero. And as Brett said himself, there's only so many times that you could save the girl from the railroad tracks before people start to get bored. So yep. Brett tried something new. We've got Sean, who's still, although we know he's a heartbreak kid, he still hasn't found his mojo. He's not, he's not Sean on screen yet. He's still playing the Heartbreak Kid character. He doesn't really know where he is yet. Um, we're having excellent matches, but yet we're still finding ourselves getting absolutely whipped by WCW because they've got this thing called the NWO. Yep, yeah, that's it. And as you said, WWF tried to counteract it by bringing back the Heart Foundation. Obviously, Brett, Owen, Bulldog and Nightheart uh, come back together and Brian Pillman later joins them. But as you're saying, we'll go over to WCW for a wee while. NWO was in fire. We know how they came to be in July 1996, uh, the Bash at the Beach. Um, and really, they just, everything kicked on. Uh, everything about them. Um, they just dominated WCW. The, the wrestlers that they, they just beat up would suddenly turn up and, and join them. If you can't beat them, join them sort of thing. So Bischoff had that winning formula going and he, he was really out for a kill on uh, WWF at the time. I mean, some of the, the signs that were getting made as well, you you just seen get, they were bringing in young cruiserweight wrestlers from, from um, Japan, different ones from down in Mexico. Chris Jericho came down from Canada from his training. So he, he eventually j- jumped ship to WWF, as we know, and became one of the greatest of all time. But WCW just seemed to have a really good show at all time. They knew when to put like cruiserweights on at the start of the show and halfway through the show and then build up to that sort of main event towards the end. So, I mean, Nitro was sort of must-see in that era as well. Nitro was... Probably Nitro is the show that changed wrestling. And if you look at any wrestling show today and hold it up against a Nitro, you can see the things that Nitro done and they're still doing it to these days. Yeah. I mean, they're still, they're still doing it. Um, Nitro was a revelation in the business and 
again, if you listen to Bischoff, anyone listen to his podcast with Conrad, he says that he went out, he done focus groups, they said, what do you like, what do you not like, people like surprises, so we're going to be live. And another thing he touches on is that not everything was perfect, people used to make mistakes, people would fall over, people would go cut at the wrong time, people would do things, but it all felt live, it all felt yeah. anything can happen. And they've not got that now. See, you watch a Raw, everything is polished, every move, every match, and every match ends bang centre of the ring, facing the hard camera. You, you didn't get that Nitro. Nitro was people's foot under the ropes, people falling a wee bit. And that's what, that's what people want to see. They, they don't want this polished version that looks like a, a TV show. They want a wrestling show. And and you hit the nail on the head when you said that Nitro would start out hot, they would have their cruiserweights, they would do all the fly-flying stuff. So if you're sitting down with your mates and you're like, fucking hell, whoa, whoa, where'd that come from? That was a 450 splash. Oh, wait, he's just done an Osai moonsault off the middle rope to the outside. Whoa, bloody hell, man, that was a car crash. And then you might not really know who these guys were a lot of the time. You might have just been introduced to them last week or the week before or even this week. But you're like, well, fucking hell, man, that was, that was good. That was brilliant. Right, what we want next? Right, we'll get a tag match. Who's in? Right, the Steiners, right? We've watched them for years. We know they're good. Right, Steiners versus Harlem Heat. Okay, right, we know about that. The Nasty Boys. So there's a great tag division. Totally different to the first match because you were getting very few high-flying tag teams. And then you'd move on to maybe, what was it, the US title they had? Who, again, much like WWF's IC belt, a lot of workers had that belt. Regal, Benoit, um, Eddie Guerrero, I'm sure, would have a shot at that belt. Yep. Scott Hall would hold that belt. A very, very worker's belt. And then by the time you got to the main event, you, it was generally Hogan who had the belt as a heel. And he was either doing the long-burning story throughout 1997 with Sting. Again, we spoke about it earlier. Sting didn't wrestle very often, but you were dying to see him no matter what yep. he'd done. Whether he came down from the rafters, whether he was just sitting looking. He's known the ring every week having five-star matches. He's just sitting. Yeah, just the anticipation I mean, of wanting him to do something. That yeah, you're spot on. That was like one of the, the best whole parts of that whole year. That's sort of nineteen ninety six where he, he sort of disappeared. Um, he'd been constantly beaten up by the NWO and he was let down constantly by different WCW wrestlers. So they, that was still for me that storyline holds up so well. That was one of the, the best ones that WCW ever ran. It, the way they, they handled it was absolutely superb. It was nearly a whole year's, year and a half's worth build to that match at the Starcade 97. Um, even though the match itself might not have been great, but the whole build, the, the, every time Sting showed up, it was either something you didn't know what was going to happen. Was it Sting said the only thing about Sting is, what was it? The only thing sure about Sting is nothing's for sure. So, I no, it was, um, no, it was just so well done, that storyline. And you've seen that, that moment where I think it was, was it uncensored, I think was the pay-per-view, and Sting finally uh, comes and fights for WCW and he just, the, the crowd erupts when he drops the bat and just starts battering uh, every single NWO member. And that's when he solidified that he was, even though he was on his own now, he was still fighting for WCW and, and the fans just got behind that and that. And really, at the time, he was, for that 1996-97 period, he was probably the most popular person in wrestling at the time. The, the thing I liked about WCW, and they'd done it so well, was they would have like a, a challenger for the, sort of a couple of months. 
Mm-hmm. Or like it'd be Luger fighting Hogan, right? And then um who else would come back? Um they brought back Piper. Yeah. And Piper's a legend. And this is something that I think is hurting WWF now, WWE now, where they don't let people take their gimmicks other places. So they can't get a reputation. And I think that was fine during Nitro, but because nobody else is on their level now, I think they should let it slide. But like Roddy Piper, everybody knew who Roddy Piper was. And he comes in and he says to Hogan, you've never beat me. I'm the one guy that you've never beat. So what a story you've got here. Because most people that's watched the Nitro watched WWF back in the 80s. So they knew this is true. This is the same two people, but it's just, it's, a, it's different if the tables are turned now. So it used to be that uh, Piper was a white hot heel. Now Hogan's a white hot heel. And Piper's coming in. He's got a bad leg. He's a bit beaten up. But this is just, this is, it's fresh. And again, yeah. WWE shows were famous for the wrestlers and the workers were on early. But then the further up the card you got, the matches were pretty pish. But the story involved in the matches and the character in the matches was so so good that you didn't really care. Yeah. Anyone that's listening to a Jim Cornette podcast will tell you, again, if you listen, don't go, oh, Jim Cornette. But he'll tell you, like, the more over somebody is, the less you really care about their matches. I mean, if you watch something like Austin Stomps, I mean, he didn't really kick him, but you're like, wow, he's stopping in the corner, you're right in it because you believe in Steve Austin. As well as somebody else does that, like, I don't know, um, give me somebody that's random and not very good. Uh, who's that guy that's Joey Mattella? If yep. he does it, you're like, mate, that's crap, mate. I don't care. <laughs> that's I mean, just the, it's just yeah. that thing. It's, and, and that's what you got with Hogan and Piper. I mean, don't get me wrong, I think they, they took tore the arse with it a wee bit much. They'd have been better having a two or three match deal. WWE is far from perfect. But again, it's that thing when you're on top and you make a mistake, nobody really notices it. It doesn't really register that much. To me, it's a bit like a football team that's on a great, great run, right? And I'll use Rangers as an example, right? Rangers, as we recalled this, have just strolled to the league title. And in the last game, they were playing Aberdeen, and Aberdeen should have scored a couple of goals. But just because Rangers are on that run of form, it just wasn't going in. As with you get a team that's fighting relegation, Two or three chances just fly in, and it goes a and after keepers are and all that. You know what I mean? It's just it's everything when it's going for you. You're on that wave, and things seem to go your way as well. You're not having a good time. Like we spoke about WWF in '96, and it's not going their way. So even if it's good stuff, it's just not registered, and people yeah. aren't seeing it because it's it's not a high. But the the other thing that we really should talk about and pay credit to is ECW that sort mm-hmm. of took off early '97. Now I'm going to be honest, right? I went through a phase of loving ECW, probably 98, 99. I loved ECW. I loved the RVD Jerry Lynn matches. But now, see, when you look back at it, it's trash. Yeah, it's, it's not aged well. Yeah. It's not aged well. Doesn't help with the fact that when you watch the network, you've not got the real music, you've not got Inner mm-hmm. Sandman, you've not got uh, What My Pantera. So that does take a uh, a lot away from it. I think it was Dave Meltzer in one of the, the documentaries recently that said ECW was the type of thing that if you were sitting in your house on a Friday night, you had a couple of beers, you're a bit pissed yeah. off at the world, ECW is the show for you because you get people through going through tables, you get chairs coming in the ring, there's no real rules, it's all spot monkeys, 
Um, yeah. I feel to a, a certain demographic. That's exactly it, what it was. Again, we, we talked to realism. If you look on the channel, if you're flicking your channels in 1996, right, and you see Bret Hart wrestling a pirate over a stolen jacket, you're like, oh, who cares? If you then turn over and you see Hulk Hogan, you go, oh, I used to like Hulk Hogan, but, uh, and then you turn over and you see RVD, who's the whole effing show, who's doing frog splashes, who's fighting outside the ring. If you see Mike Awesome, who's doing what power bombs against Japanese wrestlers, flying them out the ring, putting them through tables. If you see the Sandman coming in, singing Enter Sandman, busting himself open before he gets to the ring and scalping Dominic Dreamer about with a cane, you go, This is pretty fucking cool. This is, and that's what ECW was at the time. It was adult orientated wrestling before WWE and before WCW had done it. ECW yep. had done a lot of it. They had, yeah. If you had a bunch of mates around and you're in your early teenage years, you get Francine coming out in a bikini. Um, you've got Bela McGilly Cutty having cat fights. I see you've got Dudleys. You've got all sorts. But Taz, who was a suplex machine, and you've got Sabu, who practically kills himself every week. That is sort of must-watch TV. That is that's a great Friday night in at that time. Yeah, no, it was a, it was a really good alternative, and that's that's what most companies need. They do need that alternative to to thrive off one another, um, and especially with ECW, the fans just absolutely um, they loved it. Those ones that bought into ECW at the time, they lived that whole ECW gimmick. I mean, the, the fans that would turn up at the the crowds were of signs, and that was kind of the precursor to fans coming with signs to WWF and WCW events. So, no. There's not really too much bad words to say about ECW. I mean, I sat the other night and watched uh, the ECW One Night Stand in 2005, and that still, to me, holds up as one of the best pay-per-views that WWEF have put on in the last 20 years because the whole night was just fantastic. I mean, from from a fan's perspective, it just brought back so many great memories as well. So, no. It's a greatest hits tour, isn't it, though? Mm, I mean, yeah. it's, I, we love it, right? when Mike Awesome fights Tanaka and <laughs> always breaks his neck and flings about like a cheap tracksuit, it's incredible, but it's a greatest hits tour. It's if you go to see your favourite band, if you go to see the Eagles and they're playing Hotel California, you're loving it, right? Yeah. If your pal Gary Morris is going to see Steps and they're playing Steps Gold all night and, and I don't know, Stomp <laughs> or see, what was it, 5, 6, 7, 8 or whatever it is, Gary Morris is in heaven there, right? Because that's it. But there's nothing worse than when you go to a concert and go to a gig and they say, okay, here's about five tracks for a new album that you've not heard in your life. Yeah, it's magic. It's good, but it's not brilliant. But I, yeah. ECW was a, that one night stand. Second one's all right as well. And 06 one at the second one. Yeah. Was, uh, yep. With the hot crowd of Cena versus RVD. Uh, but I, it's a, it's a great hits tour. It's, uh, it's given them just one last look at. They could not have, well, it was proven that they could have continued with that because that era had gone that just put music on the telly and don't bother telling or paying MD for it. You see, when they get away with that 10 years later, it just, it wasn't a thing. The, you're now under WWE who are probably, probably traded by 92, eh, 06, weren't they? Yeah. So yep, you wouldn't yep. have half the stuff anyway. And ECW was pretty much booked on the fly maybe one or two stories that were going to develop but people were coming and going that much that it was a bit of a yeah it was a good a um, 
Aye, it was a good um, stopping point for some wrestlers. Obviously, Stone Cold stopped there for a month or two between joining uh, WWF. Brian Pillman uh, turned up there from time to time as well. Jericho. So, I mean, uh, as a good uh, stop-off point for some more established names just to get their mojo back and their groove before they make the big moves either over to WCW or WWF. So, w- ECW, they've done well in that regard. They were more of a... I wouldn't say more of a feeder thing, but it means there was big stars jumped eventually down time, Taz, Raven, guys like that. So, no, they were, uh, if you want to put a football spin on it, they were Southampton to Liverpool, weren't they? Yeah, for a couple of years, they were the place where, like you say, if you had had a bad gimmick somewhere else, you wanted to work, you wanted to try something else out, you went to ECW. If you were injured and had just been fired for one of the big companies and couldn't work for the other one, you went to ECW. It was a yep. great place to try something. Um, I mean, we spoke about Foley, and he really got over in ECW when he done his uh, his anti hardcore stuff, which is just incredible. This guy, you wanting to almost half kill himself, and he's sitting in the ring doing headlocks and <laughs> videoing his family Christmas. It was just, um, uh, it was absolutely incredible. But I say we are we are mostly, and I think you'll agree. At the time, we were mostly WWF fans. That's. That's where we went back and watched. I mean, it took me, I think, till about 98 before I watched the Nitro because I was a loyal WWFer. But um, we spoke about SummerSlam with Stone Cold's injury. Yep. The, I'm just trying to look. Mankind and Triple H had sort of started a feud by then, an incredible match in that big blue cage. China absolutely leathered the hell out of mankind's head with a door that I can still see it today. Oh, that was brutal. Yep. I um because that was not a nice that was not one of these it's not a Harris fence, what is it called? You know how the fence panels they use for the cages now, which being honest, right, I don't think it would really hurt you. Yeah, no, that's mesh. Yeah. Aye. It bends. We've all seen it, we've all used it as a goal at some point when we've found one for playing football. And I'd I wouldn't want my face grated against it, but it certainly doesn't hurt to the level of that big blue getting rattled off your skull because that was a that was one of them ones where you went, oh, I actually felt that. Yeah, no, you're, you're spot on. I mean that that whole event, that that first match. I mean, what a way to kick off SummerSlam. I mean, we'll we'll discuss that whole summer um, of things, but that sort of mankind Triple H feud did play out throughout that whole June right through to September time is when Cactus Jack uh, came back so uh, I mean, what a great opening to that pay-per-view I mean it's one that, that still stands the test of time watching that cage match I watched it a couple of months ago as well it's, it's still right up there in terms of the greatest cage matches in uh, WWF uh, for me so I mean th- th- there's, there's nothing more to say on that really it's just a tremendous match that whole pay-per-view itself is just absolutely outstanding I feel um, the Undertaker Bret Hart main event goes for about forty minutes, and the two of them are just some of the. It's just so hard hitting, and they take it all over the arena. They take it down to the side of the Bret Hart doing the, the sort of sharpshooter down the round the ring post as well. It's it's just an amazing pay per view, and it just sums up why WWF was so good at that time. But we'll go back a couple of months, Kev, when um, obviously the Hart Foundation had reunited as such, but they added Brian Pillman to the mix. Um, for me, we'll, we'll talk. We'll probably do a, a whole episode on Brian Pillman down the line. But 
for me, he was just one of the most underrated stars in, in wrestling history. It was just fantastic. Everything that he, he touched turned to gold, to gold for me. He was, he was just ahead of his time, really. Um, it had just been great to see him, obviously, pre, pre-injury and if this whole gimmick could have kicked off because I could easily have seen him and Stone Cold working right through the late 90s, early 2000s together. Their, their chemistry was obviously there in WCW. The story was there. It would have just been fantastic to see that loose cannon gimmick really take off uh, further down the line. Can you imagine a loose cannon gimmick with <laughs> like the internet in full flow? Like yeah. we say, it just started. Um, I'm not. I'm not going to sit here and say I'm the greatest Brian Pillman fan because it's, it's just not. Um, it's just he it was strange because, like I say, when I got back in it and I went back and watched it now. Obviously, come Bad Blood in October, he's dead. I mean, so I never had the chance to sort of enjoy his work and then sort of go back and find out more and find out more about him. But yep. so you you go back and you're like, who's that with the Heart Foundation? Because you're like, I know Owen, I obviously know Bulldog, no Brett, I know the Anvil, and like, who the hell is this guy? But then you obviously find out who he was, and like you say, you go back. And watch the stuff with the Hollywood Blondes, Flying Brian. We we are, we are now. I think we we sort of acquired the taste later on in life when we would go back and watch early nineties WCW and say, actually, this is pretty good. At yep. the time when we are seven or eight years old, and you've got a choice of watching Brad Armstrong versus Bobby Eaton, who is a guy with a mullet, and a guy who right, okay, that is there. Or you're watching the Texas Tornado versus, I don't know, who's a heel, IRS or something for about that point. You're like, I'm watching the Texas Tornado here because he looks like a star and he's fighting a guy that looks like a bad guy. But now, with your big boy pants on, you're now looking at Bobby Eaton and going, how good is this guy? Yeah. Not only is he rocking probably one of the finest mullets to ever (laughs) be worn in a wrestling ring, he's actually one of the best workers ever, but he just doesn't have that body of a god because the other boys are sort of slightly cheating with being roided up. But <laughs> when you've got the, the development of Flying Brian into the Hollywood Blondes, WCW being WCW, you pulled the rug out for under that just for because it was Wednesday. Um, and you're right, he goes on this sort of... I mean, how how do you come up with that gimmick? Then yeah, you used to love the gimmick, I mean... We if you can, he's a bit going dollar man and stuff, loving the gimmick. But Vince is telling all of that gimmick. He done yeah. this himself. He did. And if, if you can go back and watch, I think it was Cyber Slam, nineteen ninety six ECW pay per view. Uh, go and watch that because it's a fantastic it's the intro for Brian Pillman to ECW. The interview he does with Joey Styles in the middle of the ring. It's just one of those things where it's so natural to him. It's just he's trying to get this new gimmick across, and the fans go absolutely crazy. He comes in obviously as a as a babyface um, to ECW, but within five minutes he's got that crowd absolutely wanting to kill him because he just turns heel on them right away, and and that's rare in wrestling that a big name that can jump across um, to another promotion. Fans obviously loving to see them that, that instant impact, but Pillman had them eating out the palm of his hand within a couple of minutes, and then to to turn heel on them it just. It just absolutely killed him. It's, there's nothing better than a, when a wrestler gets the smart marks or the smart fans to do the opposite of what they plan to do because you're like, 
they, they, you get that pop of, yeah, there's somebody new. It's like a, yep. it's a bit of a toy, isn't it? Um, we know this guy. We know all about this guy, blah, 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 blah. We're going to cheer him because we like him and then they just make him spin. Uh, the sort of promo I go back to for that was Sean in Montreal. What was it? Oh, two, it must have been, something like that. That was a great promo. Here comes Bret Hart and he plays Bret's music and he's pretending to be scared. And then it was just a wind up. It was uh, Sean just being an absolute to Montreal. Okay. <laughs> um, but that's way in the future. But that's the sort of thing that I think about when people talk about like promos like that where you get the crowd to turn. Um, very, very few can master it, especially these days, because like back then, Pillman's writing a lot of his own stuff. Yeah. Probably most of his own stuff. Um, back then, it was a case of, right, what, what are we doing? Well, you're going to fight Wrestler X at the next pay-per-view and we want you to say this and that, which would have been bullet points. And then that guy goes out and talks and improvises. I mean, how many things got over back then? I mean, even if we fast forward to 98, a sock gets over. You know what I mean? A sock. I mean, that's just, and that's Mick Foley. Because yep. he says, I need to go in and cheer Vince up. So he, he brings in a clown and he puts a, a sock puppet in his hand. And I think, it's just these, these daft things. They often try to replicate it. And mm-hmm. it just doesn't come across as natural. But I think because you you can see Foley doing that because of the way his character evolved and you got to know more Mick Foley, less Mankind, less Cactus Jack. And and that's the sort of thing that took over. Austin 316 doesn't happen nowadays. No. It doesn't happen because they're told what to say, they're told what tone to use, they're told when to pause for how many seconds to pause and then to move on to the next scene. And it's just it's something that's missing from modern wrestling. Yeah. I think the only thing that comes close to that whole babyface comeback turn and heel was when, when Jericho came back a few years ago, remember, when it was that whole end of the world promos, he came back and he just bounced about the ring for 10 minutes and the fans were so excited to see him and then it, it just led them on, led them on and then gradually the booze started coming and that was just a perfect troll uh, from Jericho. He just walked out on him and that just turned him heel. So... Again, that's probably he's learned that from his favourite wrestlers down the years as such. So it's it's rarely rarely used and only some can get away with it these days as we've seen. So I mean Jericho's a master of it. So what what can you say on that? But no, um back to the whole ninety seven thing. So we've kind of discussed the whole summer period in a wee bit of detail, but we'll go back to just after King of the Ring when I think Ahmed Johnson's involved in a couple of feuds with The Undertaker. He joins the Nation of Domination. An injury kind of curtails that. Stone Cold still fighting away with Bret Hart and the Hart Foundation who are starting to take umbrage with the United States of America. Kevin, this leads us on to one of the... Still is one of the best storylines throughout that whole summer period right up until November when Bret Hart leaves the company. That whole um, USA v Canada thing. I mean, it was... We'd seen USA v Foreign Heels when it was Hulk Hogan against whatever foreigner would come in and Hulk would ultimately beat them. But this was different at this time because for some reason, and I don't know if this was just the schedule or what, or if WWF had done this at short notice, a lot of the shows were in Canada uh, during this whole summer period. Um, And the fans north of the border, even over here in the UK, 
I mean, I don't know about you, but we were all on the Heart Foundation side every time that they would come onto the screen. I mean, they were just massive baby faces outside of the US. Well, for me, I was going back and watching it, so like I, I was cheering on Austin. Yeah, <laughs> from that point, and and you're right. Obviously, we're going to talk about a rather eventful main event that took place in Canada, which is probably one of the hottest crowds ever. But you're right when you say that they, they somehow managed it, and it's it's very very tricky to do. And I think you're right. A lot of it does come down to the scheduling because if every single Raw is in America for six months, then you don't get that reaction. You get them being booed as heels because they're heels. But Brett had that relationship with the Canadian crowd. They loved Owen. They'd been used to seeing Davey. And Mm -hmm. people generally like Brian Pullman. So they were always going to be cheered abroad. But again, I do think that scheduling helped. And that night when they do the the individual entrances, Canadian Stampede, it's just... And the it's way still, they build it up, they build it up, they build it up, and then Brett comes out last because he's oh. the hero. He's he's the man. And to me, that's probably the pinnacle of Brett's career. Yeah. And I think down there, from then, it just starts getting downhill. Yeah, I mean, it's, you look back, it's one of those moments in time of wrestling when you see one of the greatest factions ever, one of the greatest wrestling families ever all together. Pillman, if you don't know, he was trained by... Stu Hart and the Hart brothers as well. So he he in in effect is an honorary member. He is a member of the family, really, so to speak. So it was really one of the last times you could see them all together. And it's it's quite sad when you look back now that it's really only Brett. He's the only one left out in a lot of them. So I mean, four fantastic other wrestlers gone. But no, it's it was one of the greatest moments for for a, for me anyway as a wrestling fan. Just seeing them all together that that one last time and. As you said, the things didn't go quite right for Brett thereafter. But I mean, that whole night would have been definitely one of his biggest nights in wrestling, if not the best. Isn't it amazing how over they are right now? Because if you ask people about either, give us your best top ten factions, top five factions. Heart Foundation always come up. Yeah. But how long were they together? They weren't together that long. As no, a, it was as six a, months after that. Because what the ends in Montreal. And when was Canadian Stampede? That would have been the July, yep. July, so aye, five, six months because they only got together together before that. So that's it's not a long run. Yeah, everybody still mentions them. It just shows you how it was again, like you say, it wasn't forced. It wasn't these people that had just been banded together. And believe me, over our time, we've seen people. Remember, yeah. off the top of my head, the League of Nations member, oh, Rusev, and was it? Del Rio and awful. You, you couldn't imagine those guys hanging about together. Right? You, no. you couldn't imagine it. The four horsemen, yep. they're pals. You, you can see them sitting at the back of the bar together. Um, who else? DX. DX. Yeah. Hunter, enough said. NWO, you could probably see those guys hanging about together, especially in Nash and Hall. But you could definitely see the Heart Foundation riding together because they were family. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh. And like you say, Pillman's always an adopted member of the family, but you can see that, and it's just amazing. That that night is, it's a wonderful... I mean, mate, we'll probably need to do a show on the best matches of 97, <laughs> the best matches of each year, because see if we were to try and pick a best match in 97. I mean, I'm stuck oh. between... And we're not even past August yet. Yeah. Um, 
it's jam-packed full of great matches, different types of matches as well. You know, just talking singles, you're, you've got a, a multi-man tag. I mean, how in the hell could you say that one of the greatest matches of the year is a, what is it, a 10-man, an 8-man tag? Yeah. I mean, nobody exactly. likes 8-man tags. They're terrible generally. They're usually just on Raw as filler matches before a pay-per-view or something. But this one is incredible. And we off, we always say it, mate, don't we? How often do we talk about the crowd can make a good match an amazing match? If that crowd's yeah. into that, and that's if you put that up there with the crowd again in Canada for Rock Hogan, mm-hmm. uh, the the Chicago crowd for Punk versus Cena, or like you talked about the the John Cena uh, RVD match, those crowds they help make those nights. And like you say, the Heart Foundation they were over, especially in Canada, and. That night was just unbelievable. And again, you've got Austin and the other team. You've got the LOD. And who was that? Was it Goldust, wasn't it? Was it the yeah, last man in Goldust. that match? Yeah. It, it didn't really matter. It was it was pretty much Austin. Um, it was a 10-man or 10 lies. It was 10-man because Shamrock as well. Yeah, uh, Shamrock, um, Goldust and LOD, yeah. That's right. And, I mean, Shamrock was fine. He was just in the company. Goldust, I think he was sort of floundering about this time. Yeah. Like he was... It was supposed to be, no, I think he was a late sub because it was supposed to be Mankind, um, but I think... Oh, was it no Warriors, maybe? No, that was a year That was a year before, that was 96. Was Goldust was supposed to be in this, it was supposed to be Aye, somebody Mankind, else. and then they subbed, they subbed him out because Mankind was going to continue the feud with Triple H. Aye, so Goldust, I mean, Goldust also, 97 doesn't really do, I mean, he's given stuff to do, but he's come off been a heel and they sort of tried to turn on face later in the year he would obviously mix with Pillman and Marlena and that was clearly hidden it was Marlena turning the heel on him and going with Pillman but he sort of stopped start here and the LOD like when I started watching I mean we were obviously and I keep saying obviously and I'm going to stop it but we were exposed to LOD and we didn't see the best of them. I think the best of the LOD was NWO, NWA, sorry, LOD. Yeah, we got the Legion Doom, which is fine. So it was still, they were still good to us. They were still probably the best team. They were put over like the best team. But they, they never ever got to the heights they got to in the NWA. And by this time, wrestling's changing. And I know they would try to change them in 98. They put them with Sonny. But it never, never really took off. It, it wasn't the yeah. same. They, they, they were sort of... People probably heard me say this before, but you know how in music, if you're a music fan and you listen to music from 1991, you get a lot of late 80s stuff. I mean, it's still Rick Astley sort of vibes, but then by the time you get to 96, it's totally different from 91. I think that music takes a wee year or two to change decade. It's like, it just there's a wee lag there. And I think here, you're seeing a wee lag with LOD. I mean, other places on the card, you'll see it, like Jerry Lawler, who is obviously a great heel, but he was a great heel in 1981. By this time, he's sort of podgy around the outside, and you can't really take him seriously as a sort of main eventer, going up against the Bret Hart and the likes. So it's it's that wee sort of time lag that these people have been forgotten or not moved to the card yet. And I love the LOD, but they couldn't compete at this time. And they yeah. were just... They, they couldn't have the matches. Um, I say there's just... I mean the tag division in 97 is strange because you've got the LOD who's the sort of old guys whose gimmick was they didn't sell anything which was fine in the 80s and the early 90s 
when you don't sell stuff, you pop up for pile drivers and stuff like that, and then you win the match. But here now you've got different teams. You've got the headbangers. You've got the outlaws that are going to be coming onto the scene. That's another accident. They begin to go over. And who else is tag team about this point? Well, the heart going and Bulldog. The Godwins, yeah. Like the Godwins. So again, the Godwins is another one that's sort of held over from '95 when it was uh, everybody's got another job and you've got pig and hog, the pig farmers <laughs> or what. I actually, a guilty place, I mean, is I quite liked them when they became Southern Justice. Yeah, they were not bad. The, they were all right, I thought. But I think, I think Henry got injured or something and then they, they obviously went with Midian. But yeah. no, I quite like Southern Justice. That's a sort of guilty pleasure, I mean. Excellent. <laughs> no, they were okay. They were they were good as the sort of lackeys for Double J when he was trying to go over for the umpteenth time. But well, where I, are I, we I now? Never got main event. Never nah. main event. But you know, just no. one of the down the card. Broke a hundred guitars. Never drew a dime. Let's just say. <laughs> but, but you know, I mean, they're, they're one of the guys that they could. If you've got a team coming in, you could believe that Southern Justice were there to cheat or. They're a good team to beat. They don't need to win too many matches. A bit like the Nasty Boys, they were always going to be... They were there. They were yeah. there. They were never going to be the team. You're never going to build a tag division around them. But we went about an hour and a quarter. We're just up to SummerSlam. We've still got Bad Blood. We've still got Survivor Series, which I'm pretty sure one or two things happened then. And then we've still got DX's rise. So do we put a pin in it there? And do we come back with part two next week? It's up to you, Kev. Um, some right, questions, we'll do that. obviously. We'll do that, because people will say, well, these two never shut up. <laughs> um, <laughs> they could do it. I'm just going to double-check, make sure we've got no, no questions, obviously, first before, because I had a few people asking what he's discussing, what he's going to be doing, what he's doing this. So the debut of Kane, we're going to come to that next week then, obviously. Shawn Michaels losing his smile, we, we definitely cover that tonight. Austin's injury, we kind of we kind of went over it, so no, that was that's fine. So, I a, a lot of questions already eh, for for people that are that are either followers on a Twitter account. It's uh, the Twitter accounts at wam underscore cast, so wamcast. So, Kev, any final thoughts for tonight? The only thing I want to do is I want to make this week clear. I'm going to ask you what are you watching just now? Me personally, um. <laughs> I don't know if it's because we discussed doing this pod, but I started watching Raw and Nitro from the start of 97. So I'm just after the Royal Rumble 1997. But what are you watching? What have you been watching? Old stuff, new stuff? I am, I am watching 1997. So I'm just up till after the, the Raw, after the Canadian Stampede pay-per-view. So we're leading into SummerSlam now. In terms of new stuff, I'm really struggling with WWE at the moment, so it's kind of a no-no for me. I'll watch AEW Dynamite because I, I think that's a bit more. I know you don't really like it, but we'll be discuss that down the line. I just think that's a bit more fresh as well um, for for fans and something a bit different from time to time. But uh, no, I'm I'm looking back over the 1997 stuff as well there, so I'm enjoying it again, and I'm really looking forward to watching SummerSlam again in a few weeks. So I'd imagine there'll be. Another couple of episodes of Raw and then we'll be on to SummerSlam. Excellent, right. So we'll, we'll do, we'll finish this next week. We'll finish off 97. We'll do that. We'll finish explaining why. And then we will, we'll, we'll take suggestions if anybody wants us to talk about it. But if not, we will do a topic like when I suggested that ECW overall, was it good or bad for wrestling business going forward? Because 
like it, love it, indifferent towards it, it had a massive effect on the wrestling business. Again, you still see its input these days, so that's one we've got planned. Are we going to do a watch along at some point, Sai? And then we're going think, to like guests on, aren't we? Yeah, and I think aye, we're going to try and get a couple of guests on either from the world of wrestling down the line. Um, hopefully, a couple of contacts will be able to put us in um, touch with some guys that will come on. Hopefully, some big names for us. Um, one of the, the guys that's a good friend of the show, Gary, Gary Morris, he'll be coming on um, hopefully over the next week or two as well. Uh, we're going to let him pick a topic of his choosing as long as it's not modern day women's wrestling. Um, he won't be allowed on if he dares choose that. But no, Gary will be a, a welcome guest onto the show um, and hopefully we'll get him on over the next couple of weeks. Aye, well, thank you, Sai. That was a thoroughly enjoyable hour and 20 minutes <laughs> which just seems to have flown by but that's that and we're only starting the office this is why we done this because we we were debating what to do for a first show and I said well we can both agree on we love 1997 I hope people have enjoyed listening to us I hope it encourages people to go back and watch 1997 whether it's a lot into the long haul whether it's dipping in and out of the best matches or whether it's just picking a pay-per-view and sticking with it but thank you all for listening Let's say finish up. Yeah, no, just thanks everybody for listening. We've had a great response to the show since we, we announced we were joining the network with the guys. So I hope you'll you'll listen to this episode and you'll continue to listen to us over the, the next few weeks. Our accents might be a wee bit dodgy to listen to, but hopefully you'll you'll get used to it down the line. So once again, just thanks everyone for listening. We'll see you next week. Thanks. Bye. At Quite The Thing Media, we aim to bring you the best podcasts produced by independent creators, made without constraints.